1: Hello, fans of Shukflastan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. Happy anniversary.
2: Happy anniversary. I hope I've dressed appropriately.
1: <laughs> You're wearing rings, sports themed t shirt. That's cool.
2: And I hope I can measure my clothes so that I won't get <laughs> penalized for what I've worn. Yes. Hope there's not too much loft in my pants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that is still to come. Nice little forward promotion for our interview today. But but yeah, we've been at this
2: for five years now. I know. Do you know what the official gift for five years is? Wood. So maybe we should just go ski into a tree. <laughs>
1: It is appropriate that that we're talking to him. although I'm sure everything is like fiberglass today.
2: We're going old school.
1: Right? Old school. We are talking with Blake Hughes, who is the former women's ski jumping team director and head coach for USA Nordic Sport. We talked with him back in May when he was still with USA Nordic about the sport of ski jumping. So if you remember that ski jumping suit controversy in Beijing 2022 where five women's suits were found to be in non-compliance with the rules much like not exactly the opposite of your clothing today which is conforming to all rules
2: that we have for podcast clothing not too much loft in my pants
1: (laughs) that's right so the women were disqualified from the mixed team competition that was a huge controversy so we have details on that also, a content warning, we do discuss eating disorders within the sport during this interview. Take a listen. Blake, thank you so much for joining us. You are a director of the women's ski jumping team in the U.S., and you got to go to Beijing. So first off, we have a lot of burning questions left over from the Olympics. Our listeners were really confused about the scoring Talking about, they didn't understand style points. They didn't understand how the wind factored in and the gate factored in. So can you talk a little bit about that for us?
0: Yeah, sure. So ski jumping is based off of two scores. First is you have your distance score and the other half is, is your style. You have a maximum score of 60 points for style points. There's five judges with the high score and the low score being thrown out. Those scores are based off of your general impression, your symmetry, your Yeah, it's mostly just general impression and how the judges see you with your takeoff, with your symmetry, like I said, and um, just your overall look and feel of how you're jumping. So it's it's falling with style.
1: (laughs) So basically, is the the goal to look as straight as possible in the air or like immobile in a way or –
0: Yeah, stillness is a big factor. They do look at where you are and compared to your skis and the, not necessarily straightness, but the angle of attack that you have as you're flying down the hill.
1: How angled do you want to be?
0: You want to be about, so the the landing hill is around 35 to 38 degrees and you want to be kind of parallel to the very bottom flat part.
1: Okay, that makes sense. How does wind factor in? Because we did, uh, hey, Jean's coup was really windy. First off, that was fun. Yes, yes it was. Because <laughs> and, and, there was a lot of flag up, flag down, flag up, flag down. How does that work? And were you were you the guy holding the flag for the US?
0: I was the guy holding the flag for the US for a handful of jumps. It was my first Olympics as a, as a coach. My sister competed in 2018, so I got to go to South Korea to watch her. And then I'm also from Park City, Utah, so I got to experience the Olympics here in 2002. Wind factor was, is fairly new. There's a wind and there's starting positions they start from. Each hill has around 40 to 50 different starting positions about a half a meter apart. And there's a, a jury of a technical delegate, a technical delegate assistant, a chief of competition, and they determine where the starting gate is. So that is your zero point. And if they choose to move up or move down, you get plus points for moving down because it's harder to jump further with less speed. And then you get minus points for moving up because you'll have a greater advantage with more speed as you come into the takeoff. And wind is factored for a headwind or a tailwind. A a headwind is much more helpful for lift. So you get minus points for an upwind and you get plus points for a tailwind because the tailwind will actually push the skier down to the ground. And then you have the crosswind, which there are at the Olympics specifically, I think there were 13 different monitors down the sides of the landing hill, and they all calculate – they are all calibrated together and they calculate your plus or minus points for the wind as the jumper leaves the takeoff. So it's all very orchestrated.
1: So then as you, the flag holder coach, what are you looking for to give your skier the okay to go? Because, I mean, that, all the wind stuff changes all the time. And how much time do you have to jump?
0: So for the starting of the athlete, they have a, a start light at the top. And we have a start light on the coaches' stands for us to know when it's okay for them to go. There's usually, at the Olympics specifically, because there's replay in television, there's a 50-second red light. And then once it turns to yellow, the skier is allowed to move out onto the start gate. And they have a maximum time to be on that of 45 seconds. And a minimum of time is around 12 to 15 seconds. So they'll go out. The coach will inspect the conditions. There's wind monitors and large, especially at the Olympics, there's a a monitor we can see where all the wind is is shifting around and then once they give us the green light we have 10 seconds to send the athlete I know it's a short amount of time but there's a part of that competition committee I was talking about there's a person watching the monitors as well making sure that it's safe for the athletes to go and they actually hit the green light for us and then we have that 10 seconds to send the athlete what we're looking for is a slight upwind or a slight headwind to give the athlete advantage because if you get too much headwind then it slows them down and they can't jump as far or if we have too much headwind it becomes dangerous same thing goes for tailwind we try to minimize the amount of tailwind that they have and the amount of crosswind because that can throw them off balance and and hurt their style as well i know does well, that I, help
2: I, it, no it, it, <laughs> it does, does help i just became a meteorologist and i'm yeah a-
0: no that's a lot of our job like you wouldn't know it but we're all especially at our our home hills and our home venues and places that we travel a lot to we're all so keen to like what time of days and when the wind is going to be optimal so specifically for park city utah we have to in the summertime since it's a desert it it heats up really quickly and so that brings you know the heat rises and it brings up more wind so we have to jump like from eight to nine thirty in the morning and we have to kind of be We can look at weather apps and we have weather stations at the ski jumps where we we monitor it and we watch the patterns of like, oh, it's going to be good on Wednesday. We're going to jump on Wednesday at 830. So it it really becomes very in tune with what the weather is doing in each place.
1: How were the jumping times for the athletes and for you as a coach, because you're making decisions, how were they in Beijing with all the wind that there was?
0: So it was a unique venue because they had those giant winds. You'll see those wind screens are starting to come up and they're more common and they're actually required now by the Fish International Skiing Federation for World Cups and World Championships and Olympics. So it does kind of protect the hill pretty well. But as far as those time that timing for the games, those times were specific to European television times. So we kind of just are, you know, ski jumping such a large European sport that we kind of have to just do what the TV or what Eurosport or whatever TV programming, it kind of dictates of when we can jump. They did a really good job managing the wind. And, you know, if it's, it's really strong, then they just have to have less speed. So I think that it, it wasn't optimal, but it, you know, it was managed well, I believe.
2: Well, one of the things we noticed about the ski jump in Beijing was it didn't even pretend to be covered in snow. It had that real concrete look to it. Is that, was it a very different kind of ramp and facility than you're used to, say, in North America or Europe?
0: So for the in-run, that's a very standardized track we have now. It's refrigerated grooves, more or less. Before it used to be snow track, and we would cut a track in with a special cutter and then spray it down with a lot of water to make it ice. But now it's like an ice skating rink, but they're only five inches wide, and it's permanent. That's the same track that they would use in the summertime. It just freezes over in the winter. And so there is that gray. So it's a very standard look, but also I think that they did a really good job architecturally of making something that's that's pretty to look at. So it was overkill, but I thought it was a cool venue to go to and kind of wander around and get to be a part of.
1: It really is like they're skiing down ice.
0: Yes, they are skiing down ice. Yeah, the in-run track is ice, so we prepare their skis specifically for it's as hard as a ice skating rink.
1: Get out of town. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Sorry. and, they, no, and the, yeah, they have this special um, cutter as well that goes down it and mills out these grooves that kind of look like corduroy, and so that the ski doesn't have any suction on the ice, so it actually keeps it more free and they have less friction, so that they can keep maintain their speed as they go down.
1: Huh, that's interesting. So, how do you prepare the skis then? What what are you talking about in terms like do you grind them, wax them? What 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 are we talking about for that?
0: We, we use a certain kind of wax now. It used to be that the conditions were just natural snow, so we would have to use a bunch of different types of wax to get the ski to, to have less friction. Now it's just a specific type of wax and a specific very coarse stone grind on the ski. So this cor- the ski is really coarse and it's not exactly flat, so it also has it reduces the friction as well. So there's all kinds of special tools and things that are, they keep coming up with that were, and t- different types of waxes that almost feel like like grease. So, and it's kind of funky.
1: So you've also competed as well, but I would imagine that you competed more on snow, more snow, did you do heavy and what's the feel like of snow versus this ice track?
0: Yeah, I competed until 2009 before I became a coach. So I never actually jumped on a refrigerated track. Well, I guess that's not true. They used to have it so that the entire in run was refrigerated. So it was snow, but it was like the whole thing was refrigerated. Now they just have these special little grooves that are just refrigerated. I think it's more cost effective. But skiing on the ice is just a a lot more free. You don't have to worry about any variables. There's no like springtime sticky type conditions. It's just a free feeling where you can really maintain a more aggressive in-run position and get more power out of your legs.
1: And then with Beijing being mostly man-made snow, I mean, basically you could have a season that's, a lot longer into the spring or earlier into the fall if you have a refrigerated track, right?
0: Yeah. So that's something that we're starting to do and starting to see more of is that we also jump full time in the summer. We have their porcelain tracks that we jump onto plastic that it's wetted down. So we are starting to transition from our summer jumping, which normally we wouldn't do until Halloween, November, when we have to start putting snow on the ski jumps Now we're starting to go to venues and Lake Placid New York just recently renovated their jumps and they have the same track system they had in Beijing. And so we can actually go and jump on ice there in October so that we can get that feeling and get more prepared for the winter season.
1: So the other one of the other big questions our listeners had was the line at the bottom. And you saw these in person and I know they saw them on TV. There would be lines kind of along the base of the mountain where the skier would jump and we didn't know what they stood for on the the landing and and the landing yes i'm sorry the landing
0: okay so they put lines and they put it's pine boughs so it's just parts of pine trees in japan they use bamboo trees they cut them up into little spots and then they put them around the whole hill so that the athlete has depth perception to the white surface and then the lines represent five meter increments of distance so normally the zero point for distance points starts at 60 meters so you'll see your first line at 60 meters so if we're going to talk if we're talking about the hill that the women jumped on which was the K95 which is the distance but it's also at H- H- HS or hill size 105 so those lines indicate distance from the takeoff that they're jumping so they can also gauge how far they're jumping so in the two points that I just mentioned there'll be a red line at the 95 which is the critical point for the hill where the hill starts to flatten back out And then there's the bottom red line is the hill size, which is how we measure the entire hill. And that is the point on the hill that the architect has deemed to be the safest you can jump without getting hurt. So they have these lines that kind of dictate how far you can jump.
2: So when they say you jump too far, you would get hurt. Is that because of the structure of the mountain or, or something about jumping that far?
0: It's the landing force that's been determined Once you start to get to that point, the landing force becomes above a certain unit that they no longer deem to be safe. You can jump past that line. And I think that the hill records on almost every hill is past that line. But it's for the competition management. They try to keep it above that line because of the landing forces on the athlete's knees and hips and everything.
1: I vaguely remember a green line across the landing, bit that would change. It would go up and move up and down. What is that?
0: That is a lot like in football, the yards to beat or okay. the yards to gain. So they started using the laser line six or seven years ago. And it's it's to help the audience understand where the line to beat or the distance to jump to beat is because of all these other factors that are going on with the wind and the gate compensation. So if you see someone jump 105 meters, but then they get minus points for wind, and then the next athlete goes 100 meters, but is ahead of the athlete that jumped further... This is a way to help the audience on TV and in the stadium understand that this is the line to beat. So that's the laser line that they have on there now to help the layperson understand that this is how far they have to jump.
1: Okay, that makes sense because we figured that it was something to do with how you were doing in the competition, except for that Mm -hmm. it kept moving up and down and we couldn't figure out why and I didn't realize that all those other factors factor into every jump and it's different when you are in the air and you see all these lines how fast do you have to calculate stuff in your brain
0: it's pretty much calculated we do so much training off of the hill maybe 80 percent of our training is off the hill so a lot of this becomes muscle memory because you are going 55 60 miles an hour um, at takeoff and trying to do this very specific technical movement when you're in the air you have a lot more time to think, time to think, I, I say four to five seconds. So when you see that laser line, you pretty much are like, oh, shoot, I'm not going to get there. Or you're trying to adjust your body and adjust the way that you're attacking or approaching your the flying portion to get past that line. Or, you know, almost immediately when you land, if you've gotten to that line to beat.
2: What adjustments are you making in the air or what adjustments can you make in the air?
0: Let me see how I can explain this. We call it polling. Pulling. So you're trying to like pull your body and stretch your body in such a way that you're maybe changing your angle of attack so that you can plane out more like in those like proximity flying in those wingsuits, trying to like adjust your hand movement and kind of get your skis a little bit. just just tiny little like changes, kind of like an F1 car would do with all the different like wings they have on those cars. So just little adjustments you're trying to do to more or less will yourself pass that line to put yourself in a better position.
1: Speaking of suits... What was up with the measuring? Well, the suit itself, let's talk about it first because it's very regulated so that people don't get an advantage of lift and flow. So tell us a little bit about the what the suit is made up of and what some of the regulations are.
0: The suit is a neoprene foam. It's regu- it's so heavily regulated I it would take this entire hour for me to go through the rule book. They measure the thickness of the material. They measure how much the air permeability it has to have pass a certain amount of air. Same thing happens in alpine ski racing. It measures the fit. There's the panels that it's made out of have to be cer- cut in such a certain way. It's gotten so regulated that pretty much every team travels with a tailor now. So I have a suit tailor that travels with us and each team has one because especially for women, as we know, their bodies fluctuate daily. And if it's from Monday to Wednesday, their body can be smaller, which is outside of the regulation because the suit can't fit more than three centimeters or so bigger than your body. So if you lose weight or if you're cold, like we've had we've had it happen where athletes get disqualified because say it's in September and they didn't wear the right jacket and it's a little bit cold out. So they're shaking a little bit more. So they're using more energy and the suit actually become they become a little bit smaller and the suit becomes out of regulation for them. So, wow. so that's, the regu- that's the regulations on the suit. So we have a tailor that travels with us. They get new suits frequently. And uh, yeah. Uh,
1: when do the suits get inspected by officials versus what time the competition is?
0: The suits, they used to inspect them before the jump. Now they inspect them after their jump. So there is um, the Olympic Games. There's two equipment controllers is what they're called. They'll get measured at the top to make sure that a couple of key factors are checked before they can actually even jump. So at the Olympic games, if you look back on the replay, you'll see that there's a booth right above where they start, that they have to go in and get checked by an equipment controller, then they can go down. I think it's two jumpers before them, they're allowed to go in there to get checked and then they're not allowed to touch anything other than their bindings and their helmet after that. They're not allowed to manipulate their suit or boots or equipment after they go through this check. They'll jump and then if they're randomly selected or if you're in the top six, you also have to go in mandatory. And then the equipment controller at the bottom, again, not allowed to touch anything other than your bindings, your skis, and your helmet after the jump. And then you go in to get checked uh, immediately. And they'll, they can check a number of things. So suits, bindings, boots, helmets, the undergarments you have on, anything that you, they feel you could have an advantage, there's a rule for that they can check and disqualify you. So in my personal opinion, anybody at any time can be disqualified for anything that's almost impossible to be completely compliant.
1: Wow. And it's not like you get told, Oh, this is out of compliance, get the tailor over and they'll quick stitch something up to fix it. No, it's just, no, you've already jumped.
0: Yeah. You have to, so a large part of a coach's job too. And the tailor's job is to make sure that all the equipment is ready to go. So personally for myself, like I went to the, the venue three hours before my athlete just to, get everything dialed and make sure that she's ready to go so that when she shows up around an hour and a half before the event that she doesn't have to worry about it. And the athletes are ready and they can just put their equipment on and go.
2: So the sizing is such that if you have a glass of water or not, and the timing of that, that can affect the way your suit is in or out of compliance.
0: Yeah. Well, they, they also weighed the suit has to weigh a certain amount as well as well. So that's within their body weight. So a big thing like I was saying, if they're cold or something, they'll – I've had an athlete drink a half a liter of water to, before they jumped just so that they were in compliance. And half a liter of water is, is a lot of water to put in your stomach to go try and do something athletic. Or they, you know, they usually have a catering as well. So they're in there eating cake just to try to get their weight up so they can be in compliance.
1: Holy cow. Okay, so work with me on my line of thinking Sure, here.
0: sure, sure. Uh,
1: have you seen the movie Eddie the Eagle?
0: A couple times, yeah.
1: Okay. so I've, I've
0: met Eddie also.
1: Oh, my gosh. But, okay, so Eddie is in that bar ski chalet thing and manages to pull the suit out of <laughs> I know where Allison finds a suit in the Lost and Found. hmm That's so not realistic, is it? Or would somebody just be like, oh, now the suit's not in compliance. I'm trashing it. In
0: nineteen In the 1980s, there, was, there were not hardly any rules. And... It's just got, like I said before, ski jumping is going in a direction like F1 where everything is so, like, dialed in. Now the new thing is the bindings. Like, there's so many, like, fine-tuning things going on with each individual athletes that it, it's just the way that it's going. But back in the 80s when these suits were first coming out, they're, they were – yeah, it, it's possible. I'm sitting in a room where I could go pull a suit out of a, out of a storage bin <laughs> – So they are around, (laughs) but these high, the high-end Olympic athletes, they know, I mean, their suits are so specific.
1: Thank you
2: for this. I'm sorry, Allison. No,
1: it's okay.
2: (laughs) I'm laughing because in my notes, I wanted to ask Blake if he liked the movie.
0: (laughs) It's, it's fun to watch a theatrical ski jumping movie. And I think that Hugh Jackman and uh, I can't remember his name. They did a great job of portraying it pretty close. And it's fun to see the venues that they go to. And they're like, oh, this is Calgary. I'm like, actually, that's the jump in Germany. But it's fun to, there's definitely a lot of Hollywood to it. But overall, the story is funny. And I, I think it gave our sport that's pretty small in, in the US a lot of positive exposure. Because we would do, so you've seen it. So when they're rolling on those roller jump, the, this like roller skates, and he picks him up over his head, like in Dirty Dancing. I was in Colorado doing that. and I, A bunch of kids walk by like, oh, it's like Eddie the Eagle. So I mean, it's a lot of qu- good exposure.
2: But back to the suits. So what specifically happened in Beijing with so many of the women having issues, to say the least?
0: So being there and being one of the coaches of the 15 teams, I was in the meeting when the equipment controller warned the coaches that there were complaints about what the suits looked like on the television for the individual event. This is for the mixed team, the meeting for the mixed team event that If they weren't in compliance, they were going to get disqualified. And a lot of those teams didn't take, unfortunately, her seriously enough that they continued to use the suits that they knew were out of compliance. In my personal opinion, it's a lot like Tiger Woods knowing what club he's using. The high-end Olympic athletes, they have anywhere between four to ten suits with them at the Olympic Games because it's such a huge event. And they know exactly which suit does what. So in my opinion, it, they used a, a club that they knew they were going to get in trouble with, and they, they ran that risk. When you say there were
2: complaints on the television, were these other teams complaining about what they considered were probably out of compliance suits?
0: Yeah. I mean, you can, you can look at a suit, especially if you have an eye like a coach or a tailor, you can look at a suit and be like, well, that's not correct but there were some suits that were so wildly out of compliance that you could see the athletes holding them a certain way while they were sitting on the starting gate and other teams. It just becomes like this bickering match where this team complains about that team, that team complains about that team, that team complains about that team, which more or less just puts a target on your back to get checked if you're not happy with things. So I think that it was an inner team thing coming to the equipment controller saying, how are you allowing this? How are you allowing this? And then she said, I'm not going to allow-, allow it. And you guys will see what happens. And now there's this huge backlash. But in my personal opinion, like I said, these high level athletes know exactly which equipment they're using. It's not like it was a mistake.
1: Okay. If they're taking four to 10 suits with them and it's neoprene, how well do these things fold? How much room is this taken up in a suitcase?
0: So they fold, you can fold them quarterly. And then, so a lot of teams you carry, like you'll like for specifically for my athlete, she will, she carried, we only had three suits for her. She had her three suits in a garment bag, oh, like okay. a tux, like a tuxedo and you carry that on the plane. And then you ask the flight attendant to put it in the garment bag with the other business suits or jack yeah, sport coats. So they fold in half that way. They also, um, you can flip them inside out, fold them quarterly. And then teams will travel with these giant like pelican cases almost, and they'll put the suits stacked in there so that they're protected and they don't get crunched in any any form or deformed.
2: Who makes the final decision on which suit an athlete wear? Is it the athlete herself or are some of these these athletes getting pressured by coaches or officials to say, oh, no, no, we want you to do this?
0: That's a good question. I have never personally forced an athlete to use a specific suit. They use the suits that. So like once, like I was talking earlier about the wind, one suit might be built for a headwind. One suit might be built for a tailwind. So it's just kind of based on the conditions. One suit might be for low elevation because of the air density or the high elevation. So in, in China, we were at 5,000 feet or whatever. So they have suits that are built uh, structurally different and the weight of the material is, is sewn and the direction of the there's kind of a coarseness to it. So if you slide it one way, it's like a, like a seal kind of like one way is really smooth and then you can pull it back the other way and like fibers will actually pull up and that will actually, if you flip that around, it'll slow the the suit material down so that it's better for a high elevation. So each suit is kind of dictated towards the conditions and which jump they want to use it. Kind of like a golf club. Like you want to use a seven iron when you're here, you want to use a driver when you're here. So I think that, it's so specific on some of these top teams that have the larger budgets that they have suits for each condition. So they they know like oh this is my tailwind suit for the nighttime. I'm going to grab this one. <laughs> if that helps. <laughs> oh, no, no, that
1: totally helps. Sense, but... I know it totally helps. I know. It's like your black tie formal affair.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, re- really, it is. And and one of the strategies for all the teams is that they just because there's a rainbow of colors. But you'll see one team, they'll only have black. So no one knows. And there's people on these teams, the tailors will usually track what other teams are using to try and get an advantage as well. So if you have one team jumping in only black suits, you'll never know which suit it is. Where as some teams might have an orange suit versus a yellow suit and a black suit. And they can kind of be like, oh, they're using this material because of this condition.
1: Wow. That is hardcore. Like It's
0: can- at the top, at the top end, the equipment is such a factor that it's considered half of the athlete's skill
2: now. Wow. Holy cow. Okay. We're <laughs> going to talk fat, don't fly. Yeah. Okay. Which is the phrase that we keep reading over and over being so pervasive within ski jumping. So you're talking about size. You're talking about is, are there regulations regarding a jumper's weight?
0: Yeah, and I can speak heavily to this. I am of the generation where, when I first came onto the international scene, there was no regulation. So it was, how small can you get? And there was a specific one Norwegian guy that I remember I competed against. He was six feet tall and weighed 120 pounds. Oh my gosh. So, um, and that's right when women first started coming onto the international scene. My sister was one of those five girls from Park City that was really pushing the movement to get into the Olympic Games back in 2006 as the games that they were first shooting for. So as I was 18, 19 years old is when they started to bring in uh, a BMI regulation, a body mass index, which is something that your doctor will use. And this is measured off of your, your height and weight. In ski jumping, it also includes your suit into your weight. It used to include your boots, but they were... Recently, you've taken your boots out of that to help to try and force athletes to gain that little bit of weight. It first started off as 18.5 as the BMI that you had to be at, which if you go to 18.4, you're considered underweight, drastically underweight. Now the regulation's around 21 or 21 and a half. I can't remember exactly, but so the athlete will get measured their body weight with their suit and that determines their ski length so you have a maximum ski length for your body height of 145 percent of your body height if you are underneath your bmi say if you're at 19.5 then there's a calculation that reduces the size of your ski which is less surface area for you to fly on so that's a long-winded way of how this is all interconnected of of body weight and how important it is for your for your equipment as well recently teams have found that it's better to jump with shorter skis so that has not helped this algorithm of BMI. So there is a working group of a bunch of different nations trying to rewrite this algorithm to try and promote healthier body types. But I will say with the fat don't fly or, or you know, their nutritionists and dietitians are so heavily involved with these athletes now individually that they're machines. they these, the top end athletes are really small, but they're really fit. And they're really, I think personally, they're healthy. For for the most part, there's uh, there's some that are doing it the right way, there's some that are doing it the wrong way. Speaking specifically for myself, I'm six to 195 pounds now. When I was an athlete, the day I remember, we had a coach that was, I mean, back then it was so heavily encouraged to be small that if we weren't within a certain weight, we couldn't compete that weekend. So athletes like myself who aren't naturally small, a small person. You just had to go to extremes. And when I finished ski jumping, I weighed 145 pounds. So, and that's a story for a lot of us. It was frustrating to have, you know, there's those natural athletes that are just 5'10", 135 pounds. They can eat pizza for every single meal and they don't gain a single pound. So it's a lot like, you know, it's a necessary thing for people to be small. And I think that we've gotten to a stage where you can do it the right way. And you can do it in such a way that you can still be healthy. And speaking specifically from the women's side, there's not a specific body type yet for women. So if you look at the Olympic podium, the girl who won, yeah, she was tall and slender. The girl who got second was short and stocky. This girl who was third was a different body type. And and, it's just really interesting to see that there hasn't been a conformed body type for women's ski jumping. Now for men, Someone who weighs 5'8", 125 pounds, that's pretty much, like, the premier spot you want to be. And everyone's trying to get to be around that.
2: Okay, 5'8", 125 pounds is not healthy. Correct. Yeah. I mean – there's, there's no way you can be 5'8", as a man, and 125 pounds and, and actually be okay.
0: I – like I said, like, it, it goes both ways. Like, if you look at a weightlifter and they're – you know, 300 pounds. They're not healthy either. But I think that if you're, it's getting to that point, same thing with the equipment where it's so scientific that they're trying to get to this point that, I mean, that's the average, I would say. Do you
1: find, at least in the scene, because the elite level gets more resources, do you find the younger le- the more junior levels don't know how to control weight properly?
0: A hundred percent. Okay. A hundred percent. So, he, so when he, you're talking about those those upcoming athletes that are trying to break into the scene, you're definitely going to see those disorders happening at that age. Going through what I went through as an athlete myself, and with what my sister went through, and then actual uh, coaching young people, and then coaching a national team of women, we we have the not necessarily the resources, but we have so many people that have gone through these specific things. My coaches or my staff that's gone through it that we're So open and honest and try to have this dialogue of this is how we can do this. This is how we can help you be the healthiest, fittest athlete you can be and not try to push these extremes because of the long-term damage that it can cause.
2: So given that a lot of coaches have obviously been in the system for a long time, are you finding a lot of pushback at that level saying, this is how we've done it, You know, a lot of, of bad practices still being around
0: it's all cultural so for us here in the United States i think our culture is more nurturing and i think that our generation of staff that we have now where i'm one of the older ones at only 35 years old that i think that we're changing the culture of this is how we do this properly we we have a partnership with new york university and we have dietitians and nutritionists that each athlete is encouraged to use it's a cultural shift here in the United States and i think in Canada as well and you're going to see that in other cultures that have more of a long-term athlete development sort of um, strategy, countries like Norway and Germany, where they are also kind of going this way. But once you get further east into those Poland, Slovenia, you're going to have a little bit more of a harder harder time changing those cultures at this point. So I think that there's it's definitely a cultural thing where there's more pressure in some of these different nations.
2: And then also what Jill was saying about the issues with the junior athletes, if kids are developing eating disorders 13 14 15 16 by the time they hit the elite level you've got to undo all of that
0: yeah that's correct so we're trying to catch it as early as we can we're having resources out there people like my sister who's not necessarily engaged with the sport as much anymore she has been a coach for junior athletes that are 12 13 years old you know it's a it's a really hard stigma to like Hey, you have, we have an issue here and you're not actually a dietitian, but you're like, if you can have any issues, you can always come to us and we can talk this through and kind of catch it before, before this happens. So here at USA Nordic, we have our national teams, but we oversee a junior national team, which is ages like 15 to six, 15, 16, 17. But we also have this training camp that we have called fly girls and fly guys. That's a month long training camp with kids that are 12 to 14 years old. And we already start the conversations of nutrition then and how to, prepare yourself to be the best Nordic athlete that you can be. So uh, we're trying our best to get down as far as possible before this becomes an issue to have to undo by the time they get to us when they're almost finished with high school.
2: Do you find now you're working with women, but obviously you were a male athlete. Do you find that the eating disorder issues present differently in male and female athletes?
0: That's a good question. I've worked – so my background was also a male coach before – or I coached the men before I came into the women's team. And I don't – I haven't seen any differences. I think that it's all kind of binging, purging, not putting calories in. You know, we're trying – you know, it's all those those telltale signs that are kind of common across the board from both genders.
1: I kind of want to go back to something you mentioned about body type for women versus men – how did they figure out that men needed to be small and lean and what are people saying or thinking about when they look at women's body types and they're kind of all over the gamut and still finding success? Is there any reason why? Is it because women have broader hips and and men have broader shoulders or what's the thinking on that?
0: I think the first thing is that women's ski jumping is still kind of in its infancy compared to men's ski jumping men's ski jumping still maybe a hundred years older than women's ski jumping is at this or you know the first world cup season for women was in 2011 the first world cup season for men was in 1980 so i think that we're we're seeing that it's still fairly young so it hasn't like forced itself into a niche body type but i also think that like i said before women's bodies change so frequently compared to men's that i think that that also factors into it and you're not getting away with a different body type. I just think that these athletes are figuring out how to use their specific body type at the highest level that they can, and not trying to fit themselves into a, a cookie cutter shape. At least that's what I preach with my with my with my team, because I, I can tell you our team there is not a specific body type, and we cater their training programs to get each one to the highest level that their body will let them.
2: So when there are they still. Because I know you mentioned the working group. So are they still working with BMI? Because BMI yeah. medically is has kind of been discredited.
0: I am not on the committee. I have seen some of the work that ha- they've done. It's still not finished. Um, I think that, like, it's like, same thing with culture. It's where what medical backgrounds do some of these countries have that are working on it? And where is the information coming on what BMI, if it's outdated and not necessary, and there's a different calculation that we should be using, I'm not sure if that conversation's happening.
2: Right. Because if I know for my own body, my sister and I are the same height. When I'm 120 pounds, I'm a stick. When she's 120 pounds, she feels huge because our builds are so different. And yet the BMI would say, I'm overweight and she's too thin
0: right it's just a cookie cutter sort of
2: right so it feels like and just making the skis a different length it feels like do you think there should just be a minimum weight you know if you are not 110 pounds or or something i'm not quite sure what it would be you can't jump
0: no i mean that wouldn't work for a lot of reasons but i think the bmi was used specifically because there was this issue that needed to be addressed and quickly so i think that And what I I just remembered was there has been conversation on using, you know, maybe like a, a DEXA body scan where they scan the body for what the body content is, what the muscle mass is, and having a minimum sort of body fat and going that direction. So like each person with their body has to be a certain percentage of what their body actually is and more specific. But that, I mean, with that, there's more costs and everything. So I think that this is just a, the BMI system was just a really quick way for them to start enforcing some, an issue.
2: And this is both men and women, that the the minimums.
0: Yeah, that's the same exact calculation, which is also wrong because men and women are completely different.
1: When they did the quote-unquote penalty for uh, not being the right weight to have shorter skis, what is it about shorter versus longer skis in the actual jumping process?
0: So the first thought process was that you wanted as much surface area as possible, whether that's an extra centimeter or not that that's what everybody went for. So then once athletes started to have to jump on these shorter skis because they were too skinny for their maximum length ski, they saw that the research showed that there's less surface area to block them as they fly over the over the we call it the knoll, the first part of the flight, so they can actually keep more speed which puts their apex of their jump further out over the hill so then they start to fall further out over the hill and jump further. Wow. So it was a it was a find off of
1: Oh oh my gosh. So are skiers jumping on shorter skis today than they used to?
0: 3% of athletes jump on their maximum ski. Everybody jumps on something smaller. Whether they're at their weight or not. We have an order combined athlete who's at his regular BMI for a 270 centimeter ski, but he jumps on a 260 because he can keep more speed and jump further. And they have more control over them because they're smaller.
1: Okay, that would be another question.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's another factor as well.
2: And then is there a minimum ski? I assume there has to be a minimum.
0: No, not. I mean, you don't want to jump. So like if you're my height, I would jump on a 270, like a, it's a pretty long ski. I wouldn't want to jump on a 200. That's way too small. You wouldn't have any support. So there's no, there's no minimum, but there's a point where it becomes unsafe and you're not going to get the maximum distance out of your jump.
1: And by safety, it means there's not enough ski to absorb the shock of the fall. Or not the fall. The so, you,
0: I mean, you, you watch how the jump, jumpers are. They jump and they get extend out over the ski. If they get out of the ski and they don't have enough ski, then it won't can't support their body and the skis will fall down and they'll crash.
2: Jill knows this about me. All the athletes become my children. I just I, – I adopt them all. And the idea that these girls especially, because eating disorders in girls is a thing for me, are starving themselves and doing these things and coaches pressuring them – and literally how much water they drink affects their ability to compete makes me so angry.
0: So I can speak specifically to my team and my, my athlete that sometimes doesn't pay attention to her weight so much. She is extremely healthy. A lot of the athletes are on the vegan diet that has been going around for these high-level athletes. I've eaten meals with her and been like good girl. That's a lot of food. And she's still, she's just of that body type where she's so athletic and she's so into running and so active constantly that, that she just needs to monitor because she's so active. And it's, so there, there's a lot of cases, but that's, that's one of them. And I would say that, you know, on the women's ski jumping side of all the girls that are out there, there's maybe only a handful that you would see. Well, I can't say that for sure, but I know that it's a thought process and it's been a conversation amongst the high level coaches to make sure that the athletes are healthy and and they push that kind of lifestyle. So I think we're, we're turning the page on, on how we approach women's ski jumping specifically. Now, I know that eating disorders still happen and they're still out there in women's ski jumping, especially in men's ski jumping as well, because like for myself, if you want to be a ski jumper and you're, you're supposed to be a baseball player, you have to fit your body into this, into this mold that that lets you follow your passion
1: well i think we'll shift topics one of our listeners wondered if ski jumping is like some of the other sports the the other winter sports where it's a smaller community is there a lot of camaraderie among the athletes
0: yeah we call it the ski jumping family there's uh very supportive like really good friends with a lot of coaches a lot of the girls on our team are really good friends with norwegians germans austrians it's just, it's a smaller community. It's a, it's a large sport in Europe, but we're, they all have their friends that they, we travel around every weekend together. We'll split up because competition weekends are Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we'll go to their home base in Europe or wherever from Monday to Thursday. Then we'll see them again. And we're always in contact with other coaches kind of asking like, what's your plan for this week? And you guys want to join up and play a game of volleyball, or do you want to go to the different jumping Hill? So it's a very, very close community it's very competitive and there's a lot of secrets between teams on once we get on TV and once we're competing. But once we're outside of the competition format, it's, it's really fun. It's a really fun community to be a part of.
1: What is the atmosphere like when you're competing in Europe? Because it's got to be nuts for lack of a better word, because they're so excited about it.
0: From uh, being inside the competition, like it's, it's very formal. Everybody's pretty focused from a spectator standpoint. It's so much fun to go to these venues that you know there's specifically one in Slovenia where they get 30,000 people to show up to watch this hour long competition and there's these events that happen in specifically Poland ski jumping is the number one sport in Poland if their best ski jumper ran for president he would win by a landslide they have this competition annually and they get 60,000 people in the stadium and another 50 000 or 60,000 outside of the stadium so once you get in that environment you can kind of feel that magnitude that like you might get if you're an NFL player here. There's that ag- adrenaline rush that like a lot of folks are watching what you're doing and you're on TV and there's there's prime time TV as well.
2: So how do you expand it? Because obviously ski jumping is still a pretty small sport, especially in North America.
0: That's a good question. I think it's you want to see your country win. And in the U.S. it's we're constrained to being here and we have a lot of travel. So it's hard to kind of boost that here this last year every four it's an olympic sport so every four years we get a lot of attention which is is nice and i don't i just don't think that a lot of people know that these sports and i'm not specific i'm talking about every almost every olympic sport is forgotten about for four years and then it's comes back around and everyone especially ski jumping our tv viewership is one of the highest in all of winter sports and and people like to watch it but to expand it, I think we need to start at more of a grassroots, kind of like a, a smaller tour within the United States that we can televise that U.S. viewership happens at.
1: Beyond Park City and Lake Placid, what are some other places to watch in North America? In Calgary, I would imagine.
0: And, and So there. we have 37 clubs across the country. Calgary, unfortunately, shut down. They shut their venues down. Whistler still is operating. They're hosting the World Junior Championships this year. Surprisingly, all the Scandinavians, as you might know, moved to the Midwest when they immigrated here. So there's a lot of ski jumps in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the upper peninsula of Michigan. And then a lot of Polish people migrated to Chicago. So there's a ski jump in Chicago as well that actually has one of our largest crowds that it, it, it draws. So there's Lake Placid. And then there's a ski jump in Connecticut and a handful across New Hampshire and Vermont. There's a
2: ski jump in Connecticut? Yeah, there Salisbury,
0: is. I... Salisbury, Connecticut.
2: Yeah. It's,
0: Allison uh...
1: wants to ski jump at some point in her life. I'm determined to make that happen.
0: You can go up there. I can give you a contact for the head coach up there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, as as you're saying, polls. I'm laughing to myself because it's like, find a St. Casimir Church, then you will find a ski jump facility nearby. It's probably. <laughs>
1: How do you recruit for ski jumping?
0: So, the United States is massive as we know, so it's different everywhere. So, the way we do it in Park City at the club, it's at the club level. We at USA Nordic is the national leadership group. We facilitate where we can. So, we host these small camps around, you know, weekend camps. There's a ski jump in Anchorage that uh, we have a camp up there. It's not necessarily recruiting, but it kind of it gets younger kids involved. But here specifically in Park City, we uh, use a program that was started back in the 90s it's called the Get Out Play program, where kids sign up for any number of winter sport. And on Friday afternoons, the bus grabs them and they takes them to that sport. So there's ski jumping, alpine, cross-country skiing, freestyle, hockey, you name it, there's a winter sport in Park City. And that's actually how I got into the sport. My friend was doing it. I went and tried it at this school program when I was seven and that was it. And this is now I'm still here. Um, in Chicago, they go to local schools and they have demonstrations and they just visit PE classes. And there's a, a recruiting thing that we've been starting to participate in in green Bay, where we can set up a little tiny ski jump in Lambeau field with a bunch of other different things. So there's, there's all kinds of different recruiting methods. It's just, it has to be specified to each region.
2: Is there any development of paraski jump happening?
0: We had a kid that was from Madison, Wisconsin, that was a para-ski jumper. And uh, I think he's still coaching, but not really.
2: Allison, anything else? Well, no, you know the question I really want to ask.
1: Well, I'll ask it because I asked about Eddie the Eagle.
2: Okay. Do you ever see a body part fall out onto the ski? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. We, yeah, that's, the... a, that's a joke for us. The, but... Yeah, we have um, a joke.
0: Ski jumping is the second safest winter sport because it's so heavily regulated and so heavily monitored that it's, I don't know if anyone's ever died ski jumping in in recent time. I, there's just so many, there's, there's been some serious injuries, but nothing ever has ever fallen off to my, to my knowledge.
1: We're good. And as we like to joke that with women ski jumping finally being added to the program, there's no uteruses falling all over the track.
0: There's no uteruses, but there's still some concern about their safety. And like I was talking earlier, it was the landing forces, which has actually put it into perspective for the men as well. So it, it has become more of a factor into how the the management of the jumping competitions are, are taken. So I think it actually has kind of been a, a positive thing of making sure no uteruses or anything fall out, is that it's also been a positive thing as you design a ski jump moving forward. <laughs>
2: We got Blake to talk about uteruses.
0: I'm a, I'm a women's ski jumping coach. I have heard everything.
2: I just, I love, we talked to Sarah Hendrickson before Pyeongchang and I asked her the same question and she couldn't stop laughing. She's like, I know people seriously think that, that we're going to damage ourselves in some not sporty way, in some unwomanly way. And it just, it, it's it's mind-boggling that that's the thinking
0: mm-hmm. so you might have met my sister then abby ringquist her teammate that was so i've been a part of the conversation as long as it's been a conversation oh, because okay. of trying to be a supporter of my sister and then also doing what i do now
1: far out far out Like thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us this is oh my gosh our minds are blown That sound means it's time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at Albertville 1992, as it is the 30th anniversary of those Winter Olympics. Allison, it is your
2: turn for a story. What do you have? I have French medals. So last time I talked about what did the United States do in terms of gold medals. So we're going to talk a little bit about how the host country did. So the French won three golds, five silvers, and one bronze which was a huge improvement over 1988 where they won two medals. Wow. And both of those medals in 1988 were by alpine skier Frank Picard. He was one of the silver medals in 1992. He won a silver in the men's downhill. His gold in Calgary was the first Olympic gold medal for France since our friend Jean-Claude Killy. In 1968. Yes. So there was a real connection between the organizing committee and then these medals. So Frank Picard had a very long alpine career. He skied until 2000, and then he switched to long-distance cross-country and competed in that until 2009. What? So over 20 years, he was competing at a national, international level. So one fun little thing about him, he was born in Alberville. Oh. So this, even though the skiing wasn't actually in Albertville, it was in Val d'Isere, still this was coming home for him. And he had several siblings, but two of them, Layla and Ian, also competed at the Winter Olympics in 94 and 98. Wow. So quite, quite the skiing family. He had two other siblings, which have the very French names of Ted and Jeff, <laughs> but unfortunately frank picard did not have any jean-luc in his family
1: oh want, want. is frank picard also the skier who is featured in the movie we watched the official film who is the hotelier yes he is I have this on our map, the Keep the Flame Alive world map of Olympic and Paralympic sites, which we'll put a link to that in the show notes. This is a map that is crowdsourced so that if you are traveling or out and about and you wonder if there's something Olympic or Paralympic where you're going, there likely is. So it's it's in its early stages yet, but we'll have a link to it in the show notes so you can find it and add to it if you would like. Frank Picard owns the Hotel Le Caguerie which is named after Calgary.
2: The site of his gold medal makes sense. Yes.
1: Yes. So, and, and the hotel also has the Frank Picard suite where his trophies are on display.
2: Well, there you go. You can, you can actually go see Frank Picard and visit with him.
1: Excellent. I'm so glad you told the story. So it is time to vote for the games that we will focus our history moment on next year. You can do that in our Facebook group. That is the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group. We have three choices for next year. It is Beijing 2008 because 2023 is the 15th anniversary. Seoul, 1988, it's the 25th anniversary, and London, 1948, because it is the 75th anniversary. And next year, of course, we are doing a Summer Games because we're doing a Winter Games this year. So go vote in the Facebook group by October 8th, and then we will know what history moment we will have next year.
2: Welcome to Shukflastan.
1: It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show who now make up the citizenship of our country, Shookflastan. Not much news today.
2: Very quiet. So, beach volleyball player Kelly Chang and partner Betsy Flint took second place at the Phoenix Championship on the AVP Pro Tour. Excellent work. <laughs>
1: We have some news from Paris 2024. So Thomas Jolie has been appointed as the artistic director for all four ceremonies, both opening and closing for the Olympics and Paralympics. He is 40 years old and has an extensive and acclaimed career in the theater. So he's got his own theater company called La Piccola Familia and he has a history of staging momentous productions including an 18-hour continuous performance of Henry VI and a 24-hour performance of Richard III. So I think having those on your CV helps you get a job where part of the production is a big parade down the Seine.
2: First of all, a 24-hour performance of Richard III is almost longer than his reign actually was. (laughs) But I love that his name is is Thomas Jolie, because you know, every Brit is going, it's Tom Jolly. (laughs) Which is actually a very good name for a person who's going to be doing these ceremonies.
1: Yes. So I'm very excited. We will learn more throughout the next two years about what he will do. But he's got a little challenge and I bet he is excited about it.
2: And hopefully he won't get into trouble like some of the Tokyo organizing and the Beijing organizing calling people names and being sexist and (sighs) keep it jolly.
1: That's right. And also, Inside the Games was reporting that, I I, I don't even know how to say this, so they are going to take 2,024 grams of sacred soil from the site in Olympia where the flame is kindled, and then they're going to put it in a special tube, and it will be used to promote the Olympics. Which I'm really trying hard not to laugh because I think this is just an out there idea. It's about 4.5 pounds worth of soil in a tube. So all I can think of is that now you have an Olympic
2: dumbbell. Oh, I automatically think it's like sprinkling grandma's ashes. (laughs) Like, okay, I was listening to a report the other day and apparently Disney World is a favorite place to sprinkle people's ashes. I'm not surprised. so people smuggle little tubes of ashes to bring in so it's like they're smuggling ashes to the eiffel tower and it's going to sprinkle like sprinkle it off the top so you make it dusted if you stand underneath it in the right spot <laughs> with the sacred soil of olympia
1: but i i mean i i don't really know who came up with the idea and i also don't understand but but i'm also not a person that gets excited about like Water from the River Jordan, or oh, from the sea I just, scale.
2: I just got that it's twenty twenty four grams. Yeah, two thousand twenty four
1: grams. I was thinking, what an odd
2: number to choose.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what is this odd amount? So yeah, when you're, if if anybody sees the sacred soil, let us know. I I really don't know what what they hope having the soil from Olympia will do to make people get excited about the Olympics, but, but I guess they're trying something new and different.
2: And clearly we cannot be trusted to sprinkle grandma's ashes. (laughs) (laughs) In other
1: news, Saudi Arabia merged its Olympics and Paralympics committees into one unit. There are a few countries around like, the USOPC that has done that. So that is exciting news to see that they will have an equal playing field. And that was reported in the Arab News. We would like to take a moment to thank our Patreon patrons and other donors. As a reminder, Keep the Flame Alive relies mainly on listener support to keep our flame alive and ensure that we have a community that games fans want to be a part of. So if you'd like to give back, please visit flamealivepod.com slash support to find a number of ways to do so.
2: And-, and- I I want to mention for Patreon, every month you get a bonus episode, depending on what level of support you're at. And there is stuff we do on there that is even wilder than the stuff we do on the regular show (laughs) and worth taking a listen for. So definitely take a trip over to Patreon and, and see what we got. Exactly.
1: And we are planning some interesting stuff for 2023 for our bonus episodes as well. So that will do it for this week. Let us know your thoughts about ski
2: jumping. You can get in touch with us by email at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at Pod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook where you can vote for next year's historic Olympics.
1: Next week, Film Buffran will be back with our discussion of Race, the 2016 movie about track legend Jesse Owens. If you've seen it, let us know what you think, because we love hearing your opinions. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.